0: Good morning, everybody. Um, I must say up front um, that there comes a point in every uh, preacher or pastor's life that um, you prepare a sermon and you feel pretty confident about the outline of said sermon and uh, that it will communicate the the message of the passage well. And then on Friday and Saturday, you decide to, to change that. And so the title of the sermon is different than what's said in your bulletin, Your notes are actually different than what you have, and so you have blanks there, uh, but they won't be used in the way that they were intended, Um, so I'm very sorry, Uh, but I just wanted to get that out there up front, Uh, so that means you guys weren't confused, uh, like you had the wrong bulletin or something. Um, But anyways, for your great benefit and joy, I would ask that you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible today, you can get one in the pew in front of you, or maybe your neighbor will share. If you're new to the Bible this morning, brand new to Navigating the Bible, the books are in the top corner of your pages. The chapters are the big numbers, and the verses are the small ones. We are in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I would ask that you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. the Apostle John writes in his letter to these believers. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and we heard, we proclaim also to you so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated. And would you pray with me? Righteous Father, the world does not know you but your Son does. And because of Him, we know you. Father, I pray that by your grace today, the words that are said would make us know Christ more. That Christ would speak and that His name would continue to be known. For our good, so that we might love you, and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you grew up, like I did, playing multiple sports, um, you realize that you meet a lot of people and that you have a lot of acquaintances as well. You have a lot of friends that you make through these sports. And as you grow closer with them, um, you even might even hang out with them outside of the athletic setting. But... Many of the friends that you have, you realize that your entire relationship is based on the sport that you play. Whenever you hang out, you talk about baseball or basketball or whatever it is. You interact at the baseball fields. You spend all your time, if you're not playing baseball, watching ball games with them. Your conversations are centered around baseball. It dictates what you talk about. It dictates what the relationship is like. Indeed, it is the reason that the relationship even exists. And a sport shapes and grows your friendship. And it's actually the the anchor of the entire friendship itself, if you really think about it. And if baseball did not exist, or was not real, or whatever the thing is, your friendship wouldn't exist. But since baseball is the best sport ever, obviously, and will always exist for all time... Um, you can have confidence that your relationship will always last with this person. Similarly, as Christians, we have fellowship with God. And that fellowship, that communion, that sharing relationship with God is based in a particular reality. There's a foundation or a ground that creates, that cultivates, that shapes, that characterizes The fellowship that we have with Him. And because of our fellowship with Him, it also shapes and cultivates and creates a fellowship with one another. In light of that, our main idea for today's text is that our fellowship is grounded in the gospel. Our fellowship is grounded in the gospel. This main idea is seen in three main points in this passage, and a couple of sub-points. First, the gospel's person in verses 1 and 2. The gospel's people in verse 3. And the gospel's purpose in verse 4. Our fellowship is grounded in the gospel. We see that in the gospel's person, the gospel's people, and the gospel's purpose. So first, we have the gospel's person. And in this passage, John works toward the main central point. The main phrase of this very long sentence is that he proclaims something, and that proclamation has the effect of our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God. But John's proclamation, John's words, are just mere human words. They, in and of themselves, are not what Ground our fellowship with God, or create it. Our fellowship with God and with one another comes from this proclamation, and they are grounded in the reality that John is proclaiming. So whatever John is proclaiming is the reason we have fellowship with God. It is what shapes our fellowship with God. It is what shapes our lives as we know it. So what is he proclaiming? John begins his letter by describing a particular reality that will be central to his whole entire epistle, his whole entire book. He describes someone that has divine characteristics. This person was from the beginning. It's the Word, the life, the eternal life with the Father. And John is describing that this divine individual was revealed in such a way that he's physical, he's able to be touched with human hands. He's able to be seen with human eyes. And so John is rolling out these divine phrases and at the same time, right next to him, rolling out all these human, physical phrases describing this person. John here is describing a divine person who has become human, a fully divine, a fully human person. He's describing Jesus Christ and his gospel. So John's tactic in describing the gospel is by first describing the person of Christ's divinity, he says first, that which was from the beginning, and this is John using his earlier work in his gospel, using his words in John 1.1, his Christological work that he did, and he's piggybacking off of that and saying, as John 1.1 says, the word was in the beginning with God, and this is piggybacking on Genesis 1.1. Genesis, obviously, 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John, in saying this phrase, is saying that this person, this individual, was there at creation, and therefore he was there before creation. He is eternal. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is eternal. And because he is eternal, he is God. Because only God has existed eternally. Second, John says... This one is the Word. The Word. And once again, he piggybacks on Genesis 1 and John 1. The first thing we see God doing in Genesis is what? Speaking. He's using words. God is a verbal speaking God by nature. Therefore, if God is characteristically one who speaks, then God could never be one without words, namely, without His Word, His Son unless he would be mute, and therefore he would not characteristically be God. So therefore, God, God has never been without his word. The Son has never been separated from God. And this claim talks about his eternality, sure. talks about his equality with God, sure. But I think that it's really getting at his absolute authority. God created all things with his authoritative word. Jesus is God because he has the authority of God. Third, John says, the life, the eternal life. John extols Christ here as the creator of life and life itself. Jesus does not give life by virtue of him being the word. He doesn't just produce life. Because he's God. He gives life because he is life itself. He is life. He is uncreated. He has always existed. And some might say that simply he was saying that from the beginning he's always existed and he created the world and things. But I think that it's, it's important that we realize that Jesus himself is eternal life. He is our eternal life. There is nothing created without him. He can never have been created by anything else. He is uncreated and equal with the Father. And lastly, John John extols Jesus' divinity by saying that he was with the Father. And this describes his relationship that he has with God, the Father. In John 1.14, we see that the word is called the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this is filling out what John is assuming here about the relationship of Jesus with the Father. He is one who has forever existed with the Father because he has been eternally begotten by the Father. Because he has been eternally begotten by the Father, he is the same divine essence or the divine nature as the Father. He wouldn't be something different than the Father is if he lives in this relationship with him, meaning he is equally God. While all this might seem really complicated, it's really hard to understand, we're talking about things that are way above ourselves here. John, thankfully, uses words to describe Christ's incarnation, his coming to earth as a human But in light of what has been said about the divinity of the Son, one who is uncreated, one who is eternal, one who is above all things, it would be kind of unbelievable to think that this one could even put on human flesh. This one became human? Really? Wouldn't that be kind of humiliating for God to put on human flesh? Answer is yes. But in actuality, in reading the rest of 1 John, you see that a big issue John is dealing with is the reality of the Incarnation. That is it is actually true that the Son came and united himself to human flesh. In 1 John 4, 2-3, we see this. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So John's big point in this beginning, he wants to get it out there that the incarnation is real. The Son really came. The divine was united to flesh, is united to flesh. Look at the repetition. He says, we have seen, we have heard, we have looked upon, we have touched. It was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it to you. It was made manifest. That which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim. He's repeating the same words over and over again to get across to you that the incarnation really did happen. Oh, it happened. It is real. Don't brush over the fact that John is authoritatively confirming this. That the grounds of our fellowship with God is the reality that the Son came. And John is so keen on this, not only because he wants to fight heretics and say that they're wrong, but it's because the gospel is about this son coming. That is what the gospel is. And therefore it is central to the Christian life. And notice what he does with this information about it. He proclaims it to us. It says that he proclaims this message so that we might have fellowship. Being a Christian... Being a child of God, being in fellowship with God, is the most immediate result in the continued effect of the Son coming to earth. Our fellowship with God is the most immediate result in the continued effect of the central truth of the gospel that the Son came. While we were dead in sins, He came. While we were lost, we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. He came. He dove right in to save us. The divine Son became flesh. John says, able to be touched by hands so that we who are flesh might commune with God. The divine Son revealed himself. He was made manifest so that we who did not know God might know him rightly. The word by which we were created in the beginning became like us so that we might be recreated by the same word. The one who is the eternal life, as John says, was revealed so that we who were dead might have eternal life. The Son of God became able to be seen with human eyes so that these same human eyes might see God. Friends, the ground of our fellowship is the reality that the Son is came. He came. Our fellowship is based in something that is just as absolutely true as it is absolutely glorious. Our fellowship with God is not based on our status in society. It's not based on whether we're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not based on our human emotions or our subjective truth or the pleasures of this life. No, our fellowship with God is grounded in the reality of the gospel alone. That is the grounds of our fellowship, does that give you confidence and assurance? Because the constant knock on Christianity is that Jesus wasn't God. You hear it all the time today. And if we buy into that lie, then our fellowship with God and with one another will suffer greatly and will eventually die. Or to put it positively if we get it right, if we know and we believe and we confess and we hold to the fact that Jesus Christ's coming is the foundation of our fellowship with God, then we have a rock-solid foundation that will never be shaken. We have assurance that what we confess is true and that everything else in Scripture flows out of that truth. And so we might understand all of what the Bible says. We do not believe in a fairy tale, We're not just believing in a historical man who had a a good teaching ministry. We are not believing in just a simple prophet. We are believing in someone who is absolutely real, absolutely God, absolutely man, and therefore acts as the untouchable, indestructible foundation of our fellowship with God. Which is the most important part about your life, is if you have fellowship with God or not. This is why John proclaims the truth of the gospel, because it gives us this fellowship. It shapes our fellowship with God and with one another. And that's where we're going next. Second, in verse 3, we have the gospel's people, the gospel's people. John goes on to say that he proclaims this gospel for a particular purpose. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate proclaimed, creates a people in fellowship. The gospel creates a people in fellowship with God and with one another. John says it here in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with God, the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The proclamation of this news concerning the word, the life, the eternal life, the one who was with the Father and came to earth as a man, is our foundation of our fellowship. And this is seen very clearly as well in Ephesians 2, 18 and 19. Paul says, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. The gospel creates a people in fellowship. If our fellowship with God and with one another is grounded in the gospel, then the gospel ought to shape and cultivate that fellowship as we go forward. This is why John proclaims to these believers and writes to believers for this purpose. He's not being evangelistic necessarily and saying, hey, you need to believe this so you can enter fellowship. He does that in part. But he says, you who have already entered the fellowship of God through this gospel— I'm going to give you more gospel and give you gospel and give you gospel and tell you about the Son who is incarnate so that you might cultivate and continue to live in this fellowship. So we see two things here. That we have first a fellowship, a gospel-grounded fellowship with God. And second, we have a gospel-grounded fellowship with with one another. So first we have a fellowship with God. God. A gospel-grounded fellowship with God. To be in gospel-grounded fellowship with God is to be in fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, as John so clearly says in verse 3. And to have fellowship with God is to be united to the Son and to share in the triune relationship as a Son because of the fact that He came and He died on the cross and He rose again for you. Being in fellowship with God means... As Second Peter 1 4 says, we share, we are partakers of the divine nature itself. It means that you know God through the mediator Jesus Christ, as we read in John 17 this morning. And also John says this in 1 John 4:8, that we who love God also know him and abide in his love. It means receiving the riches and the inheritance the Son receives, as Ephesians 1, chapter 1 really talks about so much. It means to be one indwelled and penetrated by the Spirit and to know the intricacies of God. For as Paul says in uh, 2nd, well, 1 Corinthians 2.11, no one comprehends God except the Spirit of God. It is being eternally made to be perfect likeness of God, as 1 John 3.2 tells us, that we will see Him as He is and therefore be like Him. These are all wonderful truths, and they really begin to fill out what it means to be in fellowship with God. But I think in John, in both his gospel and in this letter, seems to summarize our fellowship with God in one word. He seems to characterize our fellowship by describing it as a fellowship of love. A fellowship of love. As 1 John 4, 9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this makes sense, right? Our fellowship being a fellowship of love most foundationally. Because God sent his son in the gospel. And if the gospel is the ground of our fellowship with God, and the gospel is about the covenantal love of God being shown in Christ, then our love, our fellowship with God must be one of love. The gospel, which reveals and shows us the love of God in Christ, creates and cultivates a fellowship of love. So, what does our fellowship of God look like then? I think that we see this in three main ways that the love of the gospel shapes our fellowship in adoption, in intimacy, and in obedience. So our fellowship with God because of love first looks like adoption as sons. Because the gospel grounds and shapes our fellowship in love, we fellowship with God as his children, as his sons. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The way that we become children is by God implanting the love of God by the Spirit into your hearts and thus adopting you as His Son. So, therefore, our most basic identity, our most basic identity with God, how we relate to Him at the most basic level is that as a Son because of love. That is a marvelous, marvelous thing. Second, we have an intimate relationship with God. Because the gospel grounds and shapes our fellowship in love, we fellowship with God intimately. It is not distant. it is not detached. It is not as if we are down here and He is up there, and that's all it is. Just as we read in John 17:23, Jesus says, "I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one." so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. John is saying that God has loved us just as he has loved his son, which is something that we know because of our unique, intimate fellowship with him. We are in God the Father and in God the Son the way that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father by the Spirit, and they are in us. What? I can't even comprehend that. That's how intimate our fellowship with God is. That is how intimate our fellowship with God is. And then third, our because of the gospel and its love and how it shapes our fellowship, we fellowship with God as obedient children. John fifteen ten If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Our fellowship with God means that you love God and you show that by being obedient to him. But thank God that Christ came. Thank God that our fellowship with God, this fellowship that is somewhat a fellowship that is reliant on obedience, our obedience to him. Thank God that that fellowship is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as he says in the last part of the verse we just read... He has kept his Father's commandments, and he abides in his love as well. He has done a first for us. We cannot abide in the Father's love at all because we cannot be obedient to God in and of ourselves. And so Christ in the gospel came and was obedient so that we might fellowship and abide in the love of God. If Christ never came, we would have no hope. But what if we do not believe our fellowship with God is grounded in the gospel? What if we fail to recognize and understand that the realities of Jesus Christ anchor and cause our fellowship with God? Put simply, we are going to treat something else as if it is the grounds for our fellowship with God. And that it dictates how we view him and how we interact with him. And the most dangerous thing for any person to do in this is to think that they themselves are the grounds and the basis for their fellowship with God and not Jesus Christ. If that is the case, if we are the grounds and the basis for our fellowship with God, then everything we just talked about, the obedience to him, the love that we have with him, the intimacy with which we relate to him, it's something that we have to achieve and not something that we enjoy because of the gospel. We are not sons because of Jesus Christ then, if it's based on us. We are sons because we have achieved sonship somehow. That our relationship as a, as a son to the Father is reliant on our merit or good works. John does not say, we proclaim to you that you must... dot, dot, dot so that means you might have fellowship with God. He says, that which was from the beginning, who has become man, we proclaim to you, so that you might have fellowship with God. To say otherwise would be ludicrous. It would be as if there was a certain boy who had a really loving father. And every day his dad would give him a big hug as he left from work. And he would give him a big hug as he came back from work. They would spend all their time together dad would play ball with him in the backyard and take him out to ice cream, play video games with him. His dad would teach him the important things of life. He would teach him scripture because he loves his son so much. And his son loves his dad. And the relationship is one of absolute love because this man is this son's father. And this son is his father's son. It is not because the dad is just playing favorites out of all the other boys in the world and that he just chose this one to live with him and uh, this boy's merit is the reason that he, he has chosen him. It is not because the boy is somehow good enough to be able to achieve this, this status as the son of his father. It is because the boy is his biological son, something that could never change. So it would not be necessary for a son to please his father with gifts by doing all these great things. Or even just by behaving in order to be a son to his father. How miserable, how miserable would a boy be or a girl be, a son or a daughter be, if he had to live every day with the burden that his status as a son to his wonderful father that his ability to participate in the relationship that he loves so much with his dad was completely dependent on him. What kind of burden would that be on a heart? That weight would be crushing. But friends, we do the same things to ourselves if we do not remember that our fellowship with God, our sonship with God is based on the gospel. We do not build our own tower of Babels to be able to get to God and commune with him. God has communed with us by coming to us in human flesh. The foundation of our fellowship was built by God coming to us in love. The gospel is a burdenless thing. The fellowship we have with God is shaped by the gospel because the coming of the Son allowed us to be united to him and partake of these blessings in God. So we not only have a fellowship with God, we also have a gospel-grounded fellowship with one another. It is not just that we fellowship with God because of the gospel, but we fellowship with God together <laughs> as the people of God. As the people of God, we're not saved to be solely individuals in fellowship with Him, but we are supposed to be in fellowship with God together and therefore with one another. And if our fellowship with one another... Is because of our fellowship with God and the gospel, then our fellowship with one another is one of love. It's to be characterized, cultivated, in love. As first John four eleven so clearly states, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And the love of the gospel shapes our fellowship with one another in three main ways in unity, in truth and in selfless sacrifice. And so first, the fellowship of the gospel shapes our fellowship with one another by making us united in love. Because the gospel grounds and shapes our fellowship and love, we have an indescribable unity and a bond with one another. So in Christ, we have a unity with God, as we saw in John chapter 17, with all the intimate relationship language. But notice that after Jesus says that that they may be in you and and you and me he says that they may be perfectly one together and this takes form in the church in so many ways one primary way is through being at peace with one another that we wouldn't be at each other's throats all the time that we there is not any room for a bitter or sinful disagreement in the gospel this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2.17 that Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near, so that they might be one in his body. Ephesians 4.3 continues the same theme, as Paul uses some of our fellowship language, saying that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, if our fellowship is grounded in the gospel, then we ought to be united in this way. In Philippians 2.2, 2, we see another way the gospel creates a united fellowship with one another. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. This, this is a phrase that Paul is basically just saying, think the same things. Think the same things. As those who believe in the gospel, we ought to be united on what the gospel says. We ought to be united about what we believe about scripture, what we believe about baptism, what we believe about Communion, what we believe about who we are as Christians and how one achieves, uh, how one gains salvation. But maybe the most foundational way that we have this unity with one another in the gospel and that we express it so often is through communion. Through communion. The way that the church of Jesus Christ most essentially has united in fellowship with one another is through the Lord's Supper. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. When we take communion together as a church. We are actively participating in the body and blood of Christ together, and thus affirming and confessing our union together as a body. We are saying, we now participate in the fellowship we have with God, and we do it together. The bond of love that has bound us to the Lord of our salvation now binds us together in covenant fellowship. So next week, or I think it's next week, as we take communion, think on the gospel and these things. Think about how it unites us so intimately. Think about how our fellowship with God is one of covenantal, intimate love. And then think about how our participation in God through communion with one another, we are one who have a fellowship of intimate love with one another. The second thing, that we have because of the gospel with one another is a fellowship that is built on directing one another toward God through truth. We have a unity in truth. We have been changed by the gospel, are well acquainted with the foundational truth of scripture. And in our fellowship with one another, the truth of the gospel should be shared in love. As Paul says in Ephesians 4 15 to 16 he says rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ from the whole from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love true biblical gospel love is zealous in sharing the truth of scripture with one another so that we might grow into Christ's lightness. John Piper, in his book called God is the Gospel, defines love in this way. Love is doing whatever you can to help someone else see and savor the glory of God forever in Christ. Love is doing whatever you can to help someone else see and savor the glory of God forever in Christ. So easy question of application, is that us this morning? When you say you love someone, either here or somewhere else, do you mean that? Because if you don't, then it's not love. What do you mean by love if it's not gospel love? Is our fellowship with one another characterized by this kind of love? Do we do everything in our power to help one another in this room see and savor the glory of God forever in Christ by speaking the truth to one another in love? Brothers and sisters, let us strive. Let us work. Let us do everything we can to do just this. Let us speak the truth to one another in love. Let us speak as John does here. Let us proclaim that which was from the beginning to one another so that we all might have fellowship with God and with one another. And finally, because of the gospel of love and the fellowship that we have with him because of it, our fellowship with one another looks like selfless sacrifice. Ephesians 5, one says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We, as this verse explains, are commanded to walk in the kind of love in our lives with other people. To walk in the love of Christ. To walk in a sacrificial way. And if our fellowship is cultivated by gospel love, then our fellowship ought to be characterized by Christ-like, selfless sacrifice. Whether it is sacrificing our time, our money, our comfort, or maybe our afternoon afternoon alone at the house, we can give up many things that are simply non-essential in the name of selfless sacrifice and love and fellowship for one another. How might you be hospitable to other people in the congregation this week? The next time you are faced with a decision of helping or fellowship uh, with someone and doing something else, when you're faced with that decision, I want you to seriously ask yourself if this might be a God-given opportunity to exercise gospel fellowship with one another. Lastly, John ends with the gospel's purpose. The gospel's purpose. The end... The ultimate effect and goal and purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fellowship that we have with God and the fellowship that we have with one another is, as John says in verse 4, our joy. When John says our here, he's not being exclusive. He's not saying, "Well, just me and my guys. It's our joy. You guys can stay sad. Um, He's saying our inclusively, those who are in Christ. It's our joy. Everyone who has fellowship with God continues to meditate on Scripture and participate in the gospel-grounded fellowship so that we might have completed and fulfilled joy. And this means that we ought to be a joy-filled people. We are not Stoics who have no emotion. We're not stick-in-the-muds who are sad and grumpy all the time. We are those who have every reason to be absolutely joy-filled because of our fellowship with God. John Piper again defines joy as this Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. So we see this fellowship language again here. It is by the Spirit in the Son, by seeing him and savoring him as beautiful and satisfactory, that we have joy forever. If joy is dependent on seeing Christ, and we see the beauty of Christ only because we are in fellowship with Him, then our fellowship is certainly one that is filled with true everlasting joy. We are those who have been brought into a fellowship of love with God in the universe. And if our fellowship is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of love, the gospel of communion, the gospel of sonship, the gospel of intimate fellowship with God the gospel that unites us to the Son, the gospel that gives us eternal life, then we ought to have extreme joy. This is the purpose. This is the end of the gospel. And I, I want to just real quick go back to Proverbs 8 because I think it actually depicts the kind of joy that we have even now. As we know from 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is the wisdom of God. And so many of the interpreters see a deep connection to the wisdom of being personified in Proverbs 8 as being something of the Son, as being something that the Son actually could say. A lot of the personal pronouns used in parts of this passage could be personal pronouns used by Christ himself because he is the wisdom from God. And so in Proverbs 8, 28 to 30, wisdom, or I would say the Son, speaks these words. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Sound like the sun yet? And then verse 30. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. The sun... And his eternal relationship with the Father has been, is, and always will be the Father's delight and joy, and he will be rejoicing in the Father. Friends, we who have been brought into this fellowship because of the work of Christ now experience this as sons of God, that we are the Father's delight, that we have joy in God always. I look out on this congregation today and I see a lot of people that are really suffering with a lot of hard things. A lot of hard, hard, burdensome things. And there are those here who probably have honestly every reason in the book to say that they don't need to be joyful, that their situation does not lend joy to them. But, friends, take heart. Our fellowship with God is not grounded in what our experience is right now. Our fellowship with God is grounded in the reality of the Son, becoming a man, taking your place on the cross and raising again in victory over sin and death and hell so that you might be bonded to Him in the Spirit and that you might experience this eternal delight and joy in God regardless of your situation. So if you're in the midst of suffering, look to Christ. You can look to Christ. You can behold his beauty in scripture. You can commune with him there. You can go to him in prayer. And you can participate in the fellowship that you have with God. And there with God you will find indestructible, imperceable, unending joy. You can join the lament of the psalmist and say, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I will again praise him, my salvation in my God. I also look out in this church, and I think of the fellowship that we have here. I think of the fact that I don't think I've ever been in a church that I can really experience joy from the fellowship that I have with you all each and every week. That people can walk away from here who have never met anybody and have a, a, a some measure of joy in their heart because of their interaction with all of you. But how might we purposefully fellowship with one another in such a way that others might have joy? This week, how can we consciously love one another in order that joy might stir in our hearts because we have beheld the love of Christ in our fellowship with one another? Perhaps it's reading scripture and praying with someone in the church. Maybe it looks like encouraging a struggling brother in the gospel. Maybe this week week you need to go and forgive that person that you've been building up bitter resentment with. No matter what it is, let us do it so that we might show the love of Christ to those we fellowship with here and that all of us might experience the joy that we have in God. Brothers and sisters, we have a fellowship that is genuine, that is firm because of the reality of the gospel that grounds it. And there have been several applications throughout the two Um, throughout this passage and this sermon, but I think I just want to walk away with two today, is that, number one, we should actively pursue cultivating your fellowship with God and experience the transforming effect that that has on your life through reading Scripture and seeing Christ in it. So actively pursue fellowship with God daily in the Gospel. Second, I'd say that we need to take the place of John and actively proclaim the gospel to others so that they might have fellowship with God as well. Let us say this week, we proclaim also to you that you might have fellowship with God. This is the word of God from 1 John 1, 1-4, which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedience until Christ, who is our joy, who is our basis of our fellowship, returns. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for the fellowship that we have in the gospel. Let us remember that this is firm because of the reality that the Son came for us. Father, we thank you. We love you. Let us glorify you to this end today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.